what does it take for social change to go from a small idea to nationwide or global change? The internet? For the issue to catch wind in the media? Dramatic protests and direct action? Are there other ways to scale the change we seek in the world? And before I go on, I need to say it. Scale is a buzzword. I mean, it isn't really. It's a concept that geographers use all the time. But scale is one of those overused, underbaked concepts in the world of social change. So in this episode, we're going to unpack it. Today's Changemaker Chat is with Jonathan Cox. Jonathan is a community organiser and the Deputy Director of the National Community Organising Network, Citizens UK. Community organising perpetually grapples with the idea of the small and the big when it comes to changemaking. It focuses on individual relationships through the practice of relational meetings, where people are taught to see each other and their interests as the foundation for engaging in change. But equally, community organising uses those meetings as fuel for taking action in pursuit of justice, and organisers have been at the centre of many big campaigns, everything from Ella Baker's work in the civil rights movement to the global work that organisers have led for nearly three decades on living wages. The question that sits at the heart of the word scale is, can we go from small to big? And if so, how? Today, we unpack how an organiser approaches the question of scale and how a broader network of organisations can play a role in helping change travel. Our goal is to take a buzzword, unpack it, and hopefully present it in a new light. And there are plenty of stories along the way. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats. Conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. Changemakers also runs an organising school where you can sharpen your skills to make change in the world. All the details are on our website where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. So, Jonathan, welcome to Changemakers. Thank you, Amanda. It's great to be here. It's great to be here. I feel like we've got a weird connection here. I'm here in New South Wales and you're... I'm in old South Wales. It's magic. It's it's kind of grey and a bit wet and it's sort of rained consistently for the past 72 hours. I don't know if... I don't know if that's what's happened in New South Wales. I kind of suspect not. No, New South Wales has had a fairly sunny day. But look, regardless of the weather, it is such a delight to have you on the program. And you're here uh, not only as an excellent person, but also as the Deputy Director of Citizens UK. And what would be great is if you could just explain to our audience, you know, we have lots of different change makers on the show. What kind of change maker are you? So I think I'm a pretty straight down the line, orthodox, broad-based community organiser. 
in the kind of industrial areas foundation tradition of people you've had on the show before, like Annie Graf and Mike Geekin, but with a, with a different context, because lots of the uh, um, our American colleagues will often comment that kind of the UK is sort of the perfect size for organising. It's like geographically the size of a small state. I, by the way, have a, an Australian colleague who can't believe how short the journeys are to get from like one part of the UK to another and thinks nothing of like driving from one end of the world to the world. I'm like, oh, good. We would never do that. So geographically, it's it's quite compact, but we've got a big population. And uh, so, you've, you know, in American terms, you're the size of us, geographically the size of a small state. Uh, in population terms, you've got the population of a sort of fairly large state. And also we're going to talk about scale today. That's one of the things I'm really interested in. The geography and and the political geography of that really matters because we've got a kind of fairly highly centralized state that over the past 20 to 30 years has started to devolve power from the center to a number of different um, kind of localities. And that's been a really important part of our scale story and our ability to impact. And so just for those who haven't you know, yet listen to the episodes with Mike Geekin and Arnie Graf, which they obviously will after this episode because they'll be going, oh, <laughs> gosh, community organising, that sounds fascinating. Do you want to just uh, identify one or two of the key elements of the Industrial Areas Foundation tradition of organising which you practice? Ultimately, it's about it's about power. It's about how do you go about building power at community level um, to be able to make the change. I love the Archbishop Desmond Tutu quote where he says, you know, often as communities, we're really good at pulling people out the river we're less good at going upstream. So organizing for me is about a way of going uh, upstream. My, my kind of background, one of the things that brought me into organizing is by faith. And lots of the Christian churches we work with are brilliant at pulling people out the river. You know, we run food banks and asylum drop-in support and so on and so forth. But actually for lots of the people that, that I work with, they want to know, how do I go beyond this? It shouldn't just be about putting a sticking plaster in. How do we go upstream? Yeah. And then another key tenet of organizing is that it's, it's leader-focused. You know, this is not about hiring some talented staff who go and do the campaign or do do the organizing for people. Um, this is about people developing their skills of democratic leadership so that they are leading and driving the change. I think those are, those are two of the key, key aspects of it. Great. Thank you. And so what we then often ask our guests is to sort of explain, okay, so why that, my friend? Like why this approach to, to change making given the variety of things? How did this interest in making change in this way form in you over time? Share with us, a, mm-hmm. you know, a couple, a couple of stories about how you grew. Well, I think I've sort of identified three moments in my life so far that have formed me into the type of change maker I've become and 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 brought me into organising. And I'm going to try and um, use popular culture to locate us. Oh, in the good first luck. <laughs> Let's go. Um, I don't know if you're a fan of the Netflix show The Crown, Amanda. See, see, I I don't watch that show. You know, as a, as a colonial subject, obviously, I, I should probably. Say I I, I had you down as an ardent royalist, but anyway. No, I'm more like the ga- you know Game of Thrones where we kill, Game of Thrones okay. kill the crown, yeah. right? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm sure I haven't watched Game of Thrones, but I'm sure that. Oh, shock horror! <laughs> but I tell you what, we did a uh, we're digressing already, but um, we, we we run a course at Cardiff University, and we've been training 300 students in community organization who've never heard about organizing before. So you've got to give them a popular popular culture reference. We've been using the American version of The Office, you know, with Steve <laughs> Carell. It turns out you can teach all of organizing using some of the 200 I episodes. Of this. Believe it. <laughs> anyway, but The Crown, it, for listeners in Australia, I'm sure some of them heard it. It came out, I think, um, last, last November, the latest um, season. But the standout episode of, of season three was the one that focused on the Aberfan disaster of, of 1966. Now, Aberfan was a, a mining village in the South Wales Valleys. 
And on the 21st of October in 1966, the coal tip, which was a feature of all of the communities in that area, almost all of which were built around mining and almost all of which the landscape was horrifically scarred, really, with these huge mountains of waste um, that were just dumped uh, near those communities. That coal tip which had been raining for a number of, day, uh, number of days, and suddenly it slid down the mountain, uh, engulfing the primary school and, and tragically killing 116 children and 20 adult, adults. And um, you know, the inquiry afterwards concluded, you know, this disaster was a terrifying tale of bungling ineptitude by many men charged with tasks for which they were totally unfitted, of a failure to heed clear warnings and of total lack of direction from above. And that story, which which was brilliantly and very evocatively um, communicated through through the Crown episode, um, wasn't something new. Local people knew that tip was dangerous. Um, they'd asked for it to be made safe, but the the powers that be in the National Coal Board they not only ignored them, they threatened to close the pit, which was the only source of employment locally, if local people made a fuss. And this was just a, a part of a long tradition of workers and their families suffering because of an imbalance of power in those communities. And that's what I really care about um, as an organisation. It was a scandalous example of unaccountable dominant power, which had contributed to a death toll of 6,000 miners in mining accidents in South Wales. Over the, I know there's a big uh, mining tradition in, 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 in Australia as well. So I, I imagine there were some similar dynamics. And in fact, there's a reason why New South Wales is called New South Wales, I guess. Mm-hmm. I think lots of, lots of people came from South Wales uh, to, to Australia. Anyway, I, I wasn't alive. Um, during during Aberfan, but it was really a big kind of defining historical moment uh, in in the broader communities in South Wales that I grew up in. 22 years after that disaster, 12 miles as the crow flies, and two valleys to the east, which is really how we how we account for geography in South Wales is which valley are you in. I was stood in the in the schoolyard of a very similar primary school in another very similar mining town, watching with fascination as all these yellow diggers dismantled the latest, uh, sorry, the largest coal tip in Europe, which loomed over the town that I lived in. Now, at the time, like any small boy, I, w- I was most interested in the impressive JCBs, the trucks that scuttled across this enormous man-made mountain of coal waste. But in hindsight, it could have been a metaphor for the economic prospects for me and my schoolmates, which were being landscaped, which were being flattened um, right before our eyes. Because by now, we're in the mid 80s. So if you're really a fan of The Crown, you're in season four by now. Oh that my helps. God. <laughs> yeah. My wife and I are big fans. Uh, and the the of the TV program, I think, rather than the monarchy. But but <laughs> now we're in the aftermath of the miner strike, uh, in which Margaret Thatcher had sought to break the power of the mining unions. The unions had helped bring down her conservative predecessor, Ted Heath, when they'd gone on strike in the 1970s. That's also featured in another episode of The Crown. It was a very politicized concept. Uh, context rather in which to grow up my first recorded words which my parents have somewhere on um, audio cassette were Arthur Scargill who was the miners leader who led the strike and Margaret Thatcher uh, who was leading those that program of pit closures but anyway Thatcher won the pits were closed uh, and the unions had been decisively uh, beaten and as a small boy I wasn't really processing this in a political way but it did really shape who I became because that town in South Wales I grew up in, it's called Bargoid. 150 years ago, uh, it didn't exist. But then they discovered coal. Thousands of people moved to that area that to scratch this kind of black gold, they called it, out of the ground. It was dangerous, backbreaking work. I don't think I'd ever have wanted to have done it. But the wages were good, and almost everyone who wanted to find work could find it. And working people, I think this is the crucial bit for me, Working people built that community from scratch. It was their union lodges. It was their congregational chapels. And in organizing terms, 
they were engines for leadership development and democratic participation. And I kind of see what we're doing in organizing today as kind of standing on the shoulders of those giants, really. They created a vibrant civil society. And out of that crucible emerged not only a really powerful movement for change that led to higher wages, better working conditions, and in time, the development of our National Health Service. So that is one of the things that the British people are most proud of. They're regularly polled. What are you most proud of? Obviously, during the COVID pandemic, um, it's been a big thing as well. But the NHS is part of it. And it came from two valleys further to the east from me, uh, a guy called <laughs> Nye Bevan, who I've named my son after, um, who basically took his experience of terrible deprivation during the 1930s, during the Great Depression, of the appalling healthcare. They set this amazing cooperative called the Tradiga Medical Aid Society. And essentially, the NHS was a way of, um, at mass level, trying to provide a universal healthcare provision of a good standard that the Tradiga Medical Aid Society had done by people organizing, miners organizing themselves in their local community um, and running that across the country. So there was a, a wonderful tradition of social change in the communities I grew up in. But by the 1980s, when I was standing in that playground, the Thatcher government had closed the mines with a really callous disregard for the impact on those communities. They trashed the life chances of tens of thousands of young people like me from the South Wales Valleys who would now have to move to find work. It was an economic, a social, a spiritual catastrophe made manifest in a legacy of high unemployment, low pay, uh, issues of drug problems and depression, the decline of the very chapels, union lodges and miners institutes around which civil society had been structured. And 40 years on, that legacy remains. Nothing has replaced the heavy industry as an employer. And one in four of those lucky enough to have a job doesn't earn enough to live their family, uh, to lift their family above the poverty line. So that's ultimately why I moved back to Wales from London, where I was learnt to organise, to set up Citizens Cymru Wales and to build an organisation. But the lesson I draw from that story of, of like a remote government, super powerful, ripping a community apart, is this. If you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. If you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. And for me, that's the heart of community organizing. People affected by social injustice at a local level, they know what the problem is. They most of the time know what the solutions are. The issue is they don't have enough power to be able to make the change they need. And that's what organizing does and is fundamentally about for me. It's getting people off the menu and at the table negotiating for change. And that's that's why I came back to Wales to organize. Yeah. And I hear your story and gosh, it has a lot of relevance for what we don't want to have happen with the closing of, of coal mines and fossil fuel projects across the world, right? Like that's why we need organized communities in those spaces right now, everywhere. It's a big issue here in Australia, how that transition is going to occur. Yeah, look, and if you go to the communities in which, you know, I'm now organising, you, you won't find many people who want to go back down a coal mine uh, or who, who want the coal mines uh, reopened. And actually, you know, those diggers were turning the tip into a country park. You know, the, the environmental improvements of those communities have been huge. Previously, there had been coal closures. You know, look, it was part of a global trend. It was getting more expensive to mine the coal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But previously, the unions and the government had worked together on a phased Mm. Uh, a closure of the of the pits, but and in a way that attended to the economic needs of the people in those communities, making sure that there were alternative jobs available, that people were able to retrain and so on. And the difference with what Thatcher did was the brutality of it, the callousness of it, the way that she deliberately picked a fight to break the mining unions, which of course were the most radical. Basically, you know, if you picked a fight with the miners and won, 
the rest of the mine, uh, rest of the union movement would essentially kind of uh, you know would be undermined. So, so that, that that was the that was the yeah that was the background to it. Yeah. Okay. So you said you had three stories, Jonathan. Why I did. Don't you so tell I'll, us another one. <laughs> I'll tell you another one. So the second moment takes place downriver from Bargoids in the capital city of Cardiff, uh, that was once the the biggest uh, kind of coal exporting port in the world. Now, kind of growing up in a place like uh, Bargoid and driven by a Christian faith that was nurtured by my parents, that that stoked a righteous anger at injustice. And I tried lots of ways, as, as we do, to sort of try and change the world. I, I stood for election as head boy at school and I lost. That was a defining moment for me. Um, and, and I still remember Mr. Eastwood, who was a, a really important influence on my early life, called me into his office afterwards. I thought, oh, I, I don't know what he's going to say to me here. And he says, Jonathan, you need to learn from this failure. And I was like, oh, okay, what's he going to say here? Is this going to be some sort of pep talk? And so you're going to rerun the election. And he said to me, the lesson you've got to learn, Jonathan, is that you are neither good looking nor charming enough to win an election without organising. Oh, oh, like, bone! Oh <laughs> I know, that's, uh, that's radical candour right there. Now, he was a Labour councillor. Um, now, I have to say that, you know, I, Citizens is non-partisan. But in South Wales, people used to joke that if you put a red rosette on a donkey at election time, people would vote for it. It's it's an area that historically has always voted red, always voted Labour. And so a lot of the kind of people who were kind of important in my formation and in the communities around me were just by default Labour people. And um, he was one of them. So, But he leavened this radical candour by getting me work experience at the local MPs office. And while I loved party politics and I ended up with an office in the Palace of Westminster. It's kind of my first job out of university, which is a bit crazy, working for a government minister in the Blair administration. I concluded really after a couple of years there that, that Westminster had enough white, middle-class, university-educated men, and it sort of needed another one like it needed a hole in the head. <laughs> um, so I, I began to think about making democracy more accessible to local people. I was struck by, actually, there were great things going on from that government, but but really um, it wasn't connecting. People didn't feel any ownership of those changes. And it didn't, didn't encourage them to vote or participate in the democratic process. It was good stuff, but largely being done to or for people. So I went to work for a campaigning refugee charity, but I, there I got fed up. I thought this is a great way of changing the world in a way, a bit more kind of outside rather than inside the, um, the corridors of power. But I really got fed up with its failure to win. I realized <laughs> that kind of for me, winning is important. And, and it, it relied very heavily on government contract, uh, contracts for its, for its income, but also its view of refugees as clients or as victims rather than as leaders. So this second moment that shaped me was when I discovered that there was a way of winning change that was life-giving and joyful, that was led by ordinary people. And it was absolutely defined by fun because most of the ways of making change I tried before were worthy, but ultimately a bit boring. Now, Saul Alinsky, who, you know, as you'll know, is a, is a, is a, is a, is a big inspiration for community organising, says that action is to an organisation as oxygen is to the body. You know, actions to an organisation as oxygen is to the body. And I, I drew my first democratic breaths, if you like, at, at London citizens' actions. Tense accountability assemblies of hundreds of people holding politicians to account, living wage actions outside high-end hotels, dramatic standoffs outside government buildings demanding better treatment for refugees. It was kind of intoxicating and invigorating in equal measure. And when I became an organiser with Citizens UK and I got to help people develop their own campaign actions, well, nothing gives me more of a rush of oxygen into the bloodstream than that. So when we started to build in Wales, uh, and when I was first organising in Cardiff, our capital city, with a, a group of led of young Muslims led by an impressive youth worker who's now a colleague organiser uh, called Ali Abdi, well, his young people, they lived 
in the city's poorest neighbourhood, cheek by jowl with the redeveloped and highly desirable kind of Cardiff Bay. And they were angry that they were essentially excluded from the city's premier leisure destination because none, not one, of the 29 restaurants made any kind of halal provision. So, you know, Butte Town, the community they were in, was right here, literally next door was this lovely new waterside restaurant and, and, and shopping complex. And if you went there, you very rarely saw anyone who wasn't white. And it was kind of typical of the exclusion, really, uh, that the local Somali population that, you know, was not new, been established in Cardiff Bay for over a century, they routinely experienced. Why can't ha- Nando's, which is a big chicken restaurant, it's big in the UK, do you have Nando's? In we do have it in Australia. <laughs> there you are, you know what I'm talking about. So Nando's, why can't Nando's go halal? One person um, asked, you know, when I go to stay with my cousin in London, you can't walk around a corner without stumbling over a halal Nando's, yet none of the three local Nando's in Cardiff are halal. And we have to travel a 20 mile round trip to a remote industrial estate to find our nearest one. It was kind of a David versus Goliath contest, this one. And probably maybe not the sort of one we should have picked as our first action as a, as a developing alliance. But hey, there you go. But after months of ignoring the young people's pleas, the Nando's bosses in London, they caved. And they caved after an action in which 80 of those young people marched through Cardiff Bay demanding halal Nando's. They were had placards that said, we love Cardiff, we love Nando's, we just want to be able to eat there, kind of radical, radical slogan. <laughs> uh, well, three intrepid souls dressed up as chickens, and one of them ran, one of them cycled, and one of them took public transport dressed as chickens to go up to this remote Nando's restaurant on that industrial estate to pick up a halal Nando's and make their point. And I felt particularly sorry for the guy who was cycling because you might think, well, that's easier than running, but actually cycling in a, in a chicken suit and his bike was too small for him. And I just remember his like chicken knees being kind of pretty much <laughs> up by his chicken head. Uh, it was a, it was a, spe- it was a spectacle, um, but it worked. Um, it, it cut when it got, it was, it was the early days of Twitter. It was all over Twitter. It was all over kind of Nando's feed and they, um, they caved. They said, okay, we'll meet with you. We'll meet with you. Having won that recognition, the young people organized themselves to negotiate with the big wigs at Nando's. And three months later on the second festival of Eid, Eid al-Adha, they, that group of young people who led the campaign sat down in the Nando's in the city center for their first halal meal because um, basically they pushed Nando's to make halal provision there against a lot of resistance. Um, They came up with every single reason why they couldn't be done, but they organized, they took action. And that team of young people, they own that win because of their participation in that chicken run action. And that group of young people also haven't stopped taking action since on a whole range of different issues. And that campaign taught me the power that is generated when a group of young people or any people really take control of their own destiny. And they, in this case, literally get to taste the change they've made through their own actions. So that sense of leadership development and agency, that's kind of core for me to the kind of community organizing method. Excellent. So power in the communities and what happens when power is held over them. Then the power of leadership to be able to set a future for themselves and what is possible when people gather together. Tell us your third insight about what got you into the space of organizing. So my third moment this is while I was working at the Refugee Council. Now, the UK government at that time had a policy of, of locking up a 1,000 innocent children. They, well, actually, they didn't have a policy of locking up that number, but they had a policy of locking up innocent children for indefinite periods in detention centres. These are essentially kind of prisons, and every year a 1,000 kids would end up locked up in these places. And you think a 1,000, well, maybe that's not too many, but actually the knock-on effects of that, I mean, that 
frankly, from my perspective, one is one too many yeah. innocent children being locked up. But but they're basically, children. <laughs> their children. It was running at a thousand a year, and. The children had committed no crime. Their parents were simply navigating the UK's asylum system. The parents, in most cases, hadn't committed a crime either. But in the UK at the time, the Home Office had the power. Fairly junior civil servants had kind of unaccountable unilateral power. We teach on our training about dominant power and power over versus power with. They had dominant power. A junior civil servant could decide, you know what? I think it would just be more convenient for us to put you in one of these detention centres. We'll rip you out of the community you're in. You're going to go there. The mental health consequences for the kids were really profound, as you can imagine, and for the wider families, but also not just for those kids, but also for the kids around them. I met kids, school kids in Glasgow, who'd been traumatised by their classmates being hauled out of classrooms by immigration officials and being locked up hundreds of miles away. Now, I had just come out of government. And, you know, when you're in these things, you think, well, broadly, we're kind of, we're pretty good people. And, you know, the you know, and I'd, I'd probably do think that, I, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for representative politics and for people who who work inside the system. But I kind of felt a little bit like Josh from the West Wing. Oh, West dear. Wing. But, you know, <laughs> that sense of, you know, no change is impossible and, and broadly things are for the good. And I just coming across this, you know, it was obviously a manifest injustice for the first time. I naively thought if we could just get the good people in government to see the problem, they'd fix it. So. I was like, we live in a democracy. How do we go about changing the world? Okay, well, we run a campaign. So I built a campaign. I got some case studies. I did some research and found some compelling statistics. I partnered us with larger children's charities. I had bishops and celebrities and civic leaders speak out about it. I got a petition going and had 14,000 people to write to their MPs and the immigration minister. This wasn't just me, by the way. We had a whole team of us at the Refugee Council and colleagues in other organizations as well who were helping to lead this. We hosted policy breakfasts at political party conferences. We briefed journalists, the full works. And at the end of it, what did we achieve? Well, we achieved the square root of bugger all. I don't know if that translates into a, I can into work a global out what thing. zero looks like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, and I just, I have this burned in my mind. I remember um, talking to this, 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 this Labour MP and he was kind of wringing his hands as he was telling me this. He was clearly kind of embarrassed. He said, but what you've got to understand, Jonathan, he told me, was that no one wants to lock these kids up, but but the party's being murdered by the right-wing press and, and we need to show we're tough on immigration. <sighs> And and that kind of taught me that that being right, holding the moral high ground, running a good campaign, none of that is enough if you want to win, which I did, by the way, really badly. But I just couldn't understand at that point. I didn't have the frame of reference because my whole theory of change was if you want to change the world, you get involved in the formal democratic system broadly on the left from my kind of worldview and perspective and upbringing and 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 stuff changes as people act and and campaign. And it was at that point that I went on the community organizing training with citizens. And we did the Athenian Melian dialogue exercise, which I know you're familiar with, but for your listeners is, is where we look at an extract from Thucydides and um, from his, his history of the Peloponnesian War. And it's really all about this big confrontation between the Athenians, this enormous kind of superpower of its day with their military coming to kind of encircle the tiny island of Milos. And it's kind of the dialogue between the leaders of both, of both sides. And I remember, um, unwittingly, I was doing Now, my Jonathan, best you, you can't give away the end. You know, I'm, not, I'm not going to let you I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> to do that. I want everyone to go and experience a million dialogue <laughs> themselves. Yeah. 
just to say interesting lessons emerge from such a dialogue about thinking about how we exercise power, perhaps. They do. And I, I will just, for those who, who are aware of it and for those who are intrigued, I'll just say I, I was unwittingly doing my best impression of Emilian on this training. And I, I remember getting really agitated by the trainer who was saying, you get as much justice as you have the power to compel. Okay, you, you get as much justice as you have the power to compel. And that really riled me. Because I was like, that, that's that doesn't that's not fair. That doesn't sound that doesn't sound right. That 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 can't be right. But he just kind of doubled down on it, and he just kept saying, you know, it shouldn't be that way, but it is. You, you get as much justice as you have the power to compel. And and this training was full of people like me who wanted to change the world and were banging their head in one way or another a brick wall. Mostly people doing it at kind of community level. And as I lay awake that night um, on an uncomfortable bed in a drafty room in a convent. We, we by the way, use different training venues now. Uh, for yeah, wants to I remember doing mine in a convent for the first time yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I just couldn't get that phrase out of my head, you know, that you get as much justice as you have the power to compel. And eventually the penny dropped. Uh, and, and I realized that the problem with the child detention campaign that I was running was that it was all carrot and no stick. You know, we had no power to compel the justice we needed. And yeah, I, mean, I suppose it wasn't quite as, it took a couple of years for me to work this out and to work out that I could do this and it was fun and interesting and worked because winning for me is important, which is, you know, we're going to go to talk about scale in a bit. Um, I think that's crucial to that. But but with that sort of simple revelation, I switched track and started to really dedicate myself to build power for change. I, but I was kind of like a kid with a new toy. It's embarrassing a bit looking back on it. I started to use organizing in all sorts of different places. I used it to arrange a coup, a democratic coup, I should say, oh, a non-violent Lord. one, in an organization I was involved with that was highly dysfunctional and just needed change. And, and I'd begin trying to sort of change it by being nicey-nicey and sort of, you know, and that just wasn't working. So we used organizing and put a slate up in the election and, um, uh, you know, kind of got the leadership um, shifted. I got a job at Citizens and started herring off around the country, building power all over the place around um, issues to do with refugees. And eventually, the organization I built within Citizens around the country leveraged enough power through an election cycle. So we'll say, you know, your power is not static. It's in flux, depending on the context around you. And we managed to push the government to end the detention of children and then to legislate to ban it. But we re-ran that campaign based on that fundamental concept, not moral high ground, but that you get as much justice as you have the power to compel. So it became, right, we don't need to do any more policy work. We don't need to do any reports. It's all about power. Who's got the power to change this thing? And how do we build enough um, uh, to persuade them to do it? So, you know, there's a lot of other things that brought me to organising with Citizens UK, but, you know, those three of them, my my upbringing in Bargoid, that that political context, the joy of action, and the realisation that change requires power. I think those are the three um, of some of the most significant for me. But one of the challenges I've always felt about our model, I think it's good that we've got to be critical, even if we're, as you can tell, I'm enthusiastic about this model, but I think we've, we've got to be aware of its downsides. And I think one of them uh, is this question of scale, you know, making sure that we're powerful and well-organized enough to win the justice that our communities need, but without losing what makes our model distinctive. You know, it's roots in place and in community institutions and the development and the driving dynamic of leadership and of ordinary people being able to channel their anger into action. Excellent, Jonathan. That is a perfect segue. Like let's, the bulk of this conversation, we want to to turn our minds to the question of scale, because I know that 
most organisers battle around thinking about how they can both be true, as you've described, to the intensity and dignity of local relationships and where local people are able to be in charge of the change that they seek and have control over their lives. But the challenge as well to make that happen over a, a broader landscape, whether that be state or city or national or global, and the tensions often plays that the tools that one uses to, to stretch or expand the scope of change takes power away from those at a local scale. You know, and you mentioned organising finds this difficult. It's something certainly I found when I was uh, working with the Sydney Alliance, the sister organisation to Citizens UK down here in Sydney, was that we, and I think community organising more generally is often cynical about some of those tools of PR and social media, prefers face-to-face, but in doing so sometimes does itself out of the capacity to scale. How can we hold these things together? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I just want to set it up for our listeners because I also think that scale is one of those, you know, trendy words that everyone uses, but it is meaningless sometimes. And I, I sort of just ground us in what at least I think of in terms of scale. So scale is a term that comes from geography. And, you know, I ask everyone to think about maps, right? So a map, you know, any map, a small map, a globe is, is drawn at a scale, at a scale. So it's an accurate representation of a place, no matter how big the space is. Right? It's an accurate representation, one to 100, one to 10. It's an accurate representation of a place. So what a map isn't is that it's not a stretch or a distortion. Rather, it's a representation of details in smaller or bigger ways. So when we think of scaling a social justice campaign or scaling an organising project, they scale when they embody the power and relationships that are invested locally as well as more broadly. Now that's that is the hardest work there is, as you just described. It's the hardest work there is, and it means that lots of campaigns actually are more of a stretch than they are of a scale. No matter how many times we all hear everyone talk about the word scale, but enough concepts. So, Jonathan, let's get to you. You have run lots of campaigns from local to national. We've heard some of the beautiful ones, but talk us through a campaign or two where you've had to specifically grapple with this question of scale. Sure. We've just come out of kind of an election cycle in in Wales here. Um, So we have our own Welsh government now. That's one of the kind of uh, trends that I described where kind of power having been very centralised in Westminster, you know, in the days of Margaret Thatcher, when she was making those decisions, like literally there was no entity within Wales that could kind of resist that. She had a commanding majority in the House of Commons. And basically the next level of government was your local council, which was tiny and had very little power comparatively. We now have, which we've just had elections for, our own Senev, which is kind of similar to the word Senate, I guess, in English, which is our own uh, group of elected politicians with our own government, Welsh government, that has devolved power over things like healthcare and education and uh, a whole range of other things. And then other things like immigration and and defence and stuff get done um, at, 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 West, at Westminster. When I started to work with a group of leaders in Wales who were like, "Mm, we've seen this stuff that's going on in London and various other places um, called community organising. We quite like a bit of that in Wales. We had a question about what was the right scale to build the organisation around. And the kind of default answer to that question at the time was you do it around a city or you do it around a local authority boundary. You know, I cut my teeth in London, in the London borough of Wandsworth, uh, working under the kind of the, um, the the oversight of an amazing organizer in South London called Bernadette Farrell, 
And Bernadette gave me this assignment in a place called Wandsworth, which was happened to be the place I lived at the time, but was a really true blue conservative borough. They, you know, they they absolutely had a massive majority. They pro- they were. Mo- Margaret Thatcher's all over this podcast. I had, had, had an <laughs> what have you done to us, Jonathan? What have I, well, what's she done to me? I don't, but basically, Wandsworth was her historically her favourite council because they prided themselves on having like the lowest council tax in the country. Oh, um, and like that was their driving driving kind of mission. And obviously, that had a knock on effect for some of the services they provided, particularly to kind of the, um, the poorest people. And and I was working in the context of a couple of estates that had been involved, uh, well, not involved, but lots of people had got involved in some riots, basically. It happened in 2011, London riots, maybe people have picked we up. We heard about them too. It's amazing. Yeah, you heard about those. What, how news what travel. Yeah. yeah, 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 it's amazing. On the, on the kind of the carrier pigeon, eventually brought it over several weeks later, I guess. But yeah, so, so I was operating just in that borough. That was like 250,000 people, you know, built around a local council. And 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 my job was to go pretty much from scratch, build an organization in that area. And it was an amazing place to cut my teeth. And, um, you know, some great things were achieved. And also I made some horrific mistakes um, as we all do in organizing. But when when we start to think about, okay, well, what, what would it look like to build in Wales? The default thing was where you go to the biggest city you've got and you go there. So that, would, that was Cardiff, basically... Cardiff is quite a small city. It's three. It's, it's the capital, but it's three hundred thousand people, so it's not massive. But that was where we were going to start. So we had a group of leaders on that sponsoring committee who were saying, "Right, okay, let's build build to this scale." But actually, some of the leaders on that sponsoring committee, the people like uh, uh, Jim Barneville, who was a kind of big big leader in the Catholic Archdiocese, uh, Jonathan Durley from the Anglican Diocese, Peggy Jackson, who was one of the archdeacons, they kind of said, "Isn't this a bit small?" to kind of be building only in Cardiff. And like, isn't there a question here about who we're going to exclude? Exclude. So I think there's also a question in organising that we have to ask, not just about the kind of what we can achieve through scale, but also who we're excluding. Because mm-hmm. some of the people who are cynical about size and scale and so on said, well, you know, there's no, uh, it diminishes the participation. If you go to a bigger scale, it diminishes the participation of people at the grassroots in this local level. And there is a risk of that, definitely. But actually by building only in a city, you are de facto excluding everybody from being able to participate who's not in that city okay so so i think there's and and that was the wonderful thing about that group of leaders it helped that there's a sort of sense of national identity in wales and that we're kind of both big enough but small enough you know it's only three million people overall geographically it's an absolute it's terrible to get from north to south the communication links are not great and so on but there is a strong sense built around language and history and uh, and the rugby team that we are connected and together and and basically they said, well, well, we think we should be building this in a more inclusive way. Let's construct this chapter um, around Wales. And I was kind of blown away. Well, very, I'm not sure that's possible. Not what I'm used to. We're doing very small, you know, small scale stuff. That's the way I've, I've, I found it working. But then we did our power analysis. Okay, so a crucial tool of community organising again goes back to that learning of from the dialogue. You know, you get as much justice as you have the power to compel. So we use the tool of the power analysis to say, well, what kind of justice do we want? And uh, what kind of power do we need to be able to leverage in order to do that? And very quickly, just by doing some early listening with the organizations that were wanting to participate in the development of citizens there, as we began to listen in their institutions, core part of the organizing process, it became very clear that the issues that they were raising, yes, there were some that were very, very local, but lots of them went way beyond anything that the local council had the power to deliver. So if we structured our organizing model around just kind of local authority boundaries, which is kind of what we were doing um, before, or clusters of local authorities, we would have not only excluded 
the vast majority of people in the country who could potentially have participated and opted in in an inclusive way. But also, uh, we'd have limited our ability to leverage and we'd have ended up with our leaders getting frustrated because, look, our leaders are holistic people. They care about the hyperlocal. They care about the potholes and the fact you can't have a halal nandos and that you can operate really, really locally. But they also care about the fact that social care is underfunded so that their loved ones don't get well served because care workers are being paid poverty wages. So in that space, how did you, I mean, you you identified that, you know, a potential weakness of, of being across the country was the risk of not involving, not necessarily running hyperlocal campaigns on, on potholes, mm-hmm. but actually just having the deep participation of people inside of institutions. How did you mitigate and avoid falling to the trap of, of not, of, of, of papering over that? Like, how did you ensure leaders were in charge of the campaigns? So what we decided to do was to have an absolute orthodoxy in some things while pushing the boundaries in others. And what what we chose as the absolute orthodoxy was the core of the organizing model. I I like to think of organizing as a fractal. It's kind of like a mathematical term, but it's like a piece of broccoli. When when I think of fractal, I think of the movie Frozen, but I think that's placing... Into the unknown. Yeah. I, I was, <laughs> my, my daughter will love this. Literally, we did the frozen quiz list today. I, I'm, turns out I'm Anna. No, I'm, yes. Yeah. No, no I'm also, no, I'm Anna. I'm Anna. Anyway. Um, However yeah. you come to the idea of fractal. Yeah. Fractal. But broccoli, broccoli is the way I think about it. Absolutely hate broccoli, but it's good as a, um, as a visual because whatever kind of bit of the broccoli you break off, the essential core structure of it is the same. And I think the same is true of organizing. You can apply the organizing model hyper-locally in like one council ward. And that was actually what I was doing in London before I left it immediately uh, when building Wales. I had this, on the one hand, building things hyper-locally in like one or two estates, helping people to build power, like literally door to door in, uh, you know, kind of an area of a couple of thousand people, while at the same time starting to try do the same process at kind of across a nation. And the way we decided to to balance that was institutions were core. So you still have the model of organizations of civil society paying dues to join and own the organization. It was within those institutions that we would organize people and we would follow the organizing principle and process um, exactly as, um, as was set out. But we would structure ourselves across the whole nation, but we would balance that with hyper-local organizing. Okay, so essentially what we've done, and you know there are weaknesses to this model. We don't have like a st- currently a strong kind of Cardiff citizens. We have a very strong citizens Cymru Wales identity, and then we have very strong hyper local action. And both of those are led by leaders, and both of those are orthodox in organising terms. They run. You would recognise it coming from the Sydney Alliance or or anywhere else. But what we've decided to do is is to not focus on that middle geographical tier at the minute. Okay, we want we've because. We feared that if we just did the national work and then citywide, you would lose the local mm-hmm. ownership. So, but by doing hyperlocal, people learn to cut their organizing teeth around the issues that are closest to them, but then they have the ability to be able to um, then impact at a much greater level and to be able to cut it with you know politicians who've got budgets of billions and billions of pounds and power over big issues in their lives. And this is, I think this is one of the things that is really interesting about organizing and perhaps not always present, certainly not always present in the organising, in the social change work that I've seen, is you've just talked about the combination of smallness, intimacy, close relationships, 
and mm-hmm. bigness and the desire to hold smallness and bigness together. I'm wondering if you, if you want to unpack that a little. And I mean, in my head, you can go wherever you want, but in my head, I'm mm-hmm. thinking of living wages and how yep. living wages has traveled across nations and how it's been in Citizens UK, but thinking about smallness and bigness and how a campaign moves, if you could talk us through that. That's a great prompt, Amanda. I mean, going back to Bargoid where I grew up, I think I mentioned that 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 post the Thatcher era, when all the pits had closed, terrible problems with unemployment, but actually also real problems with in-work poverty. You know, the idea that you are earning, you're working, but you are not earning enough to live with 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 with, with dignity. And you know, this is um, the modern day kind of living wage campaign um, had 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 been kickstarted by um, actually my mentor at the time, um, Jonathan Lang. Uh, from from Baltimore and in Build, and um, and Neil Jameson, who'd set up Citizens UK, had uh, developed this idea after a big listening campaign in East London, where they'd identified that kind of low pay was a was a major issue. And when I was first organising in London, the living wage was the big thing. That was what we were really organising was was low wages and migration were the two big big areas we were organising around. And again, I was amazed at this gutsy campaign that would basically stick it to these big banks um, and these big organizations and hold them to account, go to shareholder meetings and, uh, you know, kind of run bank uh, 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 hold up actions and all this sort of stuff and get these, you know, this is before the banking crash, right? So, you know, these, these organizations were kind of completely untouchable, it was thought. And also the dominance of a kind of market theory was untouchable. You know, I think the radical thing that the living wage has done by insisting that organizations should pay what it costs to live in a particular place rather than what the market decides is it's challenged the orthodoxy of the market that you can't, you know, that's what people say to you. You can't do that. The market sets wages. You know, you can't intervene with that. Well, now we have 7,000 accredited living wage employers uh, in the UK from huge companies like, you know, kind of IKEA, uh, you know, you can, can employ thousands and thousands of people right down to, you know, kind of really, really small uh, local SM, uh, uh, small businesses and stuff, and also big parts of the public sector. And when when I start to organise back in Wales, you know, I think a key part of this, again, the orthodoxy of organising is you don't, you don't lead with issues, you put people before programme. So I didn't come back thinking, right, we're going to set up a living wage campaign here and drive it. But leaders, as they're exploring the model, they learn from other people. And they see what works. And as lots of our leaders began to go on citizens training, began to go on study actions to see uh, and and study visits to go and see other parts of the the network, the living wage campaign really resonated because it kind of spoke to the structural change. You know, one of the questions that people were asking when we were setting up in Wales is, do we really need this? You know, actually, Wales is different. You know, this is my experience, by the way, anywhere when you set up an alliance. Uh, people say, oh, do we really need this here? Because, because we're different. And of course, everywhere is different. Uh, but my, my experience is I haven't found a community yet that doesn't need more power for justice. So they kind of tend to get there in the end. But one of the things they said was, well, London is a big city and people don't know each other very well. And yes, you want to bring communities together. But in Wales, actually, we're, we're very communal. Uh, we, we know each other well already. We don't need to be brought together in an alliance. We're already working together across civil society. We've already got quite good relationships with government and stuff. Why do we need it? And it was actually seeing the living wage campaign and the impact it made that I think got a lot of the leaders in Wales excited about the kind of change that this could drive. So, so when we first got the um, the organisation up, up, up and off the ground, you know, we started to run campaigns on this. I remember um, St David's Catholic Sixth Form College. We were doing a youth leadership program there in the early days. There was a leader called Emma Gonsalves who uh, whose mum was a cleaner at the local council. When we did a listening campaign, you know, that was the issue. She said, you know, what made life difficult for her and, and her mum were the low wages that the local council um, was paying. 
And people were scandalized that, you know, in public sector work, it was creating poverty pay and and and, and in work poverty. And so basically that Emma and a group of that young, those young people went, it helped it was just before an election. This was even before the, the organization had really formally founded. We were really in the early days, but they just said, well, we want a bit of this model. Got me booked meetings in, run an action, booked meetings in with um with the the, the leaders of the local political groups running for control of the council. Mm-hmm. And basically, two days after the um election, a new political party took over. And because of the meeting and the testimony that Emma had shared, the first thing that council leader did said, I'm gonna introduce the living wage. Okay. Wow. So a thousand thousand workers in that in that council were lifted out of in work poverty immediately because of, you know. That action, and then people began to. But also, just can I just hold you there? Obviously, because of that action, but also because of an idea that was developed in 1994 in Baltimore that was important in Jonathan's backpack and travel to the UK. Mm -hmm. That then also Mm -hmm. emerged in East London, then also popped up here. Like, this is how things scale, right? Yeah, and it's different to how we often scale is communicated, where it's communicated as someone clever in London or has just spread some with some magic dust. This is different. This is a different process you're describing. And, and I think it, it spread also through the methodology of organizing, but also the sharing of story, you know, storytelling was crucial in this, but also, you know, when I came to Sydney for, you know, in the wonderful days when we were able to travel, uh, we're still in lockdown here, by the way, in the UK, uh, you know, I remember we were talking about comparing different campaigns across, uh, across the world and the idea of leapfrogging, do you remember that? You know, some, yeah. somebody said, well, you know, what, what, what you see happen is, you know, one, what, you know, a one group of people somewhere in the world develop an idea. Others are inspired by it, but they also think, how can we do that better? Yep. And then they, yeah. they do it. And then someone else watches that and says, OK, well, you know, and I think also organizing work. That was totally our experience in Wales where it was like, OK, well, we see what they're doing in London about the living wage. How can we how can we do that? But also better in our context. How can we leapfrog uh, that? And also now people have let leapfrogged, if that's a word. Mm, uh, interesting. Uh, us, 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 us as well. I think that's such an interesting, you know, kind of example of how things can kind of grow, well, not just in organising, but in social change generally. Yeah, this idea of a rising tide lifts all boats, but, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I know we're using a lot too, probably too much metaphor, but that, that, that idea that there's a concert a resonance. There's a theory in neoliberalism called fast policy. This guy, Jamie Peck, wrote about the fast policy of neoliberalism and sort of talked about how dysfunctional it was. But there's an equivalent emancipatory policy amongst those who seek community power where there's an exchange of ideas. And, you know, I always live in hope that listening to a cool podcast and getting ideas can be part of that journey where people see things and hear things and get inspired to do things similar but different, right? Exactly. And, and I mean, just in terms of the practicalities of that, you know, so we suddenly had all these little living wage campaigns running everywhere. And then it really opened people's eyes to, you know, the scale of in-work poverty and got people asking tough questions about who is causing this, not just the local councils, but actually also Welsh government, which kind of prided itself on its anti-poverty strategy, but was also funding jobs in poverty pay. So that became a big focus. And and, beca- and this is where scale was important because we structured, even though we were a really new organization, because we structured ourselves at a Wales-wide level and we were able to include people from across the whole country, we were able to leverage at that level. So we got Welsh government to become a living wage employer. We've been working with them to kind of build it down their supply chains uh, and to, for them to use their kind of both their very direct, but also their influencing power to kind of grow the living wage. But the one sticking point was around social care. So in our listening, we were repeatedly coming up against this issue of care workers 
who were being paid poverty wages. And actually, as we explored that, as our leaders got into it, they discovered it was endemic. You know, this was actually a structural and systemic problem. Our councils, even the ones that accredited living wage, were saying, we can do this, but we can't do it for social care because there's simply not enough money in the system and we've got more demand than we can cope with. You know, the need for social care is going to grow. We've got enough, not enough money in the budget um, to do that. So back in 2016, we ran a big accountability assembly, 800 people in a big venue in the centre of Cardiff. We had care workers, care providers, care recipients, care commissioners come on stage and basically confess. It was kind of a kind of confessional testimonial, a testimony of people saying, we are all implicated in this system. We are all struggling. We want to change it but we have reached the limits of what we're able to change within the levers we've got available to, to us. The change now must come from government, from, from, from in this case, Welsh government and, 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 and hopefully the UK, but we weren't putting much hope in that at the time. And we had there the leaders of the four main political parties that were about to contest the election, and they were very moved by that testimony. But to be honest, nothing happened for two to three years after that. We kept pushing on it. We kept organising. We had care conversations. And, and we were just getting no traction because they put it in the too difficult folder um, as a government. They were like, well, we can take steps towards this. They kept saying, this is an urgent priority for us as a government. We're kind of saying, what does urgent mean? Well, maybe hopefully we'll sort it in three or four years. And it was like, oh, wow, we've got, we've got to do something different. But then the politics changed because the first minister stood down. A new first minister came in, but without, without an election. It was an internal election in the Labour Party. And we took a decision uh, Dave Horton and Carol Chalice, two of our kind of key leaders, said we've got to organise around this internal election in the Labour Party. We've got to build relationships with the candidates and we've got to get them to prioritise social care for the second part of the term. And we ended up building this really interesting relationship with a guy called Mark Drakeford, who ended up winning that election in the Labour Party, ended up um, becoming first minister. And the first public event he came to as first minister, he was very unknown in those days. Now everybody knows him because he's just won another election and he's the face of the pandemic in, in Wales. But we got him on stage in front of 400 people uh, in the Students' Union in Cardiff. And again, we had care workers and care recipients on stage talking about the lack of a living wage and the difficulties that that caused. And we put to him, he'd used in one of our pre-meetings with him as we were building this relationship, saying, we need a revolution in social care. It's not enough just to uh, change wages. We need a broader revolution. So we parroted his words back at him in front of 400 people. We said, "If you know, will you work with us over the remainder of this term on a revolution in social care with the living wage at its foundation? And he sort of, he's a, he's a professor and very careful about what he says and a man of great integrity. So he we quibbled a little bit the language, but I, I, he doubled down on the language of revolution in social care. But he said to us, I need your help because basically I'm going to have to make a big policy decision about spending money on this. It's, going to, it's probably going to be the most costly thing we could do um, as, a, as, as a government. I'm going to need backing on this in communities. So since then, we've been building a cross-party consensus. We've been organising at local level. Uh, fantastic leaders like Adele Adabwani, uh, a Kenyan care worker, uh, and an amazing organiser, an Australian called Fiona Meldrum, um, have been working on this to build a consensus in Welsh civil society. And that culminated in the recent election with all of the main political parties, even the Conservatives, who historically have been a bit sceptical about the real living wage, committing to build at least the real living wage for care workers into their manifesto. And the first thing, uh, Labour ended up winning the election kind of a bit more emphatically than was expected. And last Sunday, you know, the, on the big political programmes, uh, TV programmes, um, the Welsh government ministers coming out, the key thing they're saying they're going to deliver on is a real living wage um, for care workers. 
wow. that's come about. Yeah, it's hundred hundred. You know, I mean, it hasn't happened yet. So I, you know, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. The, the I don't hold them accountable if, until they but, do. But but it's but it's a hundred thousand pay rises in Wales. That you know that for us in Wales, that's a you know that's a hundred thousand people um, that are going to be lifted out of in work poverty. We we estimate, and crucially, what it does going back to my story in Bargoid is it as terrible as it was working in the mines. Those were quality jobs, as bad as it was from the environment. Those were quality jobs that paid well, and we have really suffered for lack of those. And what this begins to do, it starts to take care, which is a huge sector that you can't outsource and export to another part of the world. It has to be delivered. It makes those quality jobs, or begins to make those quality jobs. There's all sorts of other things that need to be done to professionalize it and so on, but it begins to make those quality jobs. And that's so important for, you know, kids in kind of the primary schools in Bargoid where I live now, because it's another large sector where they can stay in those communities if they want to, and know that they can earn a decent wage doing kind of important, um, important work. But I think scale is so important to that win, because if we hadn't made that decision of balancing uh, the, the Wales-wide chapter focus with the hyper-local organising where people cut their teeth. We wouldn't have the leaders, if we hadn't done the hyper-local work, who were rooted in their communities who were able to sway things at a local level, or who were able to cut it um, and negotiate and sit around the table. We had a 90-minute a, a summit during the height of the pandemic with the First Minister, where we were basically pushing him in this direction. We wouldn't have been able to do that if we didn't do the hyper-local, but we wouldn't have had the power to be able to make the change if we weren't structured Wales-wide. And there's one other thing I want to lift up before I ask you our final question, which is that I also think that, you know, in that story is one of the reasons why we seek scale, which is that some problems can't be solved at the hyperlocal. Indeed, mm -hmm. many mm -hmm. problems, not all problems, mm -hmm. but many problems can't. The question of, yeah. of living wages for care workers, writ large, most uh, many of the people listening to this program would be going, so many of the problems that we work on can't so mm -hmm. be simply solved locally. And so part of our challenge is, is to be thinking at a big enough scale to be able to even define the thing that we seek change on, mm -hmm. as well as then being able to amass the influence requ required. I think that it's it's also a question of, of problem as well as solution. And then also just wanted to lift up, like what I love about the living wage story is that it was multi-scaler. If to use mm -hmm. a to use mm -hmm. one a, a sort of a complicated term, which is that mm -hmm. that it it sought targets at multiple scales. It wasn't saying the uh, there's only one place we seek to act, one site we seek to act, but lots of companies, seven thousand companies, councils, governments, um, country mm -hmm. governments. You know, all these different places as sites of activity. So, which is incredibly important and rich when you've got a hyperlocal as well as more centralised network mm -hmm. that you you mm -hmm. have the space for lots of people to be able to act. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So here's my final or if here's my final question for you, Jonathan, which is okay, you have done lots of campaigning, lots of different in different forms, and you have grappled with this challenge around scale. I want you to think if you were going to whisper into the ear into young Jonathan, right? Young Jonathan who's a refugee <laughs> council trying to smash out some cool stuff, not quite sure what he mm -hmm. is trying to do. And you were thinking about the question of scale what would you tell him? And in particular, I'm wondering, not just the lessons of community organising. We know those lessons are important, power, relationships, leadership, having a, um, an analysis and, and strategy to win. We know those things are important. But is there is there anything else from the sort of muck and complication of scale that you've learnt that you wish you'd known sooner? Yeah, I think if you're, if you're, and this again is going kind to of be a bit of tension with organising. It touches actually on one of your observations at the end there about defining scale 
And I think there is a question about who gets to, you know, and, and the question of like, how do we make sure that we're at the right scale for the problems we're trying to solve? The key question there is who's deciding what the problems are that we're going to solve. And I do think there's a danger there. If you've got a situation where basically it's staff or or, or organizers making that decision without without leaders and a process of listening and, and leadership there, I, th- I think there's always risk with that. But I suppose the thing I would say is while not compromising on putting people at the heart of this and and uh, making sure that you're not organizing out people with lived experience um, uh, and and the local communities that you serve, it is much, much easier to start at a bigger scale and then to go smaller than it is to start small and grow out. I think would be my big, and, and that applies in organizing, but to be honest, I think that is also the case uh, in any kind of people-focused social change you, 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 you want to make. There's a tension in it, obviously, because I, what I wouldn't want to say to me is, well, forget anything local, just scale up. But always have in your mind that if if power and the sort of things you're like, the kind of power you're likely to want to be able to wield and uh, the decision-making authorities um, are structuring themselves at that level, you always want to have that in mind and to be able to think about how could we make, how could we have the ability to scale up to that um, up to that level. And actually, it's just kind of easier. So what we do now, I mean, just practically example of this, the new chapters that I'm helping us to uh, to build in places like Essex and Thames Valley and Somerset and other parts of England, by default, we, we choose a scale that is much larger than we had historically. And then we have sub-alliances within it because we're pretty sure in talking strategically with some of the leaders who've done the training, they're going to want to be able to scale up kind of to bigger than kind of just just the local area. And so we kind of factor that in. So so I think I, I wish I'd sort of learnt earlier. I, I wish I'd been less naive about how change happens. I wish I'd learnt that lesson about the importance of building power. Um, and it's scandalous, I think, that I never was never taught that in my education at any point, really. I did a degree in history and politics. That was never taught, I, you know, citizenship in school. That was never... But, but, I, but I think um, understanding that it's quite big, to quite hard to start small... And grow. There's all sorts of resistance, natural resistance to scale once you're in there. In a way, you've got to have uh, the sense of scale baked in from the start, I think, and getting people to conceive of their participation in more than just um, the, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the very local. Because then actually it is really hard and you're in a constant tension with people to sort of lift their eyes and uh, get them to think about the kind of the, um, the bigger scale if they're, if they're so heavily invested in, in the local. And that excludes other people you know, who kind of say, well, organizing's not for me because it's just kind of pissing in the wind. It's great that you've managed to get some stop signs and, you know, get a zebra crossing and, uh, you know, get the Nando's to go locally to go halal. But, you know, I, I want change on a bigger issue. You know, I, I want to be able to do something about the Syrian refugee crisis through organizing. That's another thing I think we're really proud of. 20,000 Syrian refugees resettled because of a Citizens UK campaign. Uh, and it was, it combined the local with something that could scale up. You know, we got people locally to engage their local councils to get them to commit to take people. We got people involved in community sponsorship saying, we will bring people here ourselves, take responsibility for that. But also we're going to leverage on our politicians to get the UK to take a, um, a decent number. So I think there's no, but, but I think that's also about us as organisers and, and eight change makers everywhere, whatever, whatever way you're making that change, to be doing that thinking and to raise our eyes, to raise our sights really, um, to be th- to be thinking about that and to gently challenge the orthodoxies in 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 which we've been nurtured. Yeah, I hear you. We need to hold small, but we need to think big. Yeah, 
Okay, Jonathan, it's been a pleasure. I'm looking forward to to having more conversations like this in the future. I hope our, our listeners enjoy being able to really share your brain when it comes to hearing your insights on scale. So thank you. Thank you. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Xander Shavanaviv. Our audio producer is Jules Wookera. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. Don't forget to take a look at our organising school if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking. making.